Hello everyone, it's April 16th, 2019. This week, well, Bereshit didn't quite make it, but it almost did, and there is a silver lining because Space IL is not giving up. Shooting for the moon is never easy, but you gotta keep trying, and lift off. And we have Clear the Tower. Welcome to episode 206 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And there's no Dennis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where's he gone? He's on, he's at the... He's a, on a field trip, right? Yeah. Yeah. He gets to go on all, all these cool field trips to telescopes. Is it Kit Peak? Yeah. Kit Peak. Also, he was he was on TV. I meant to tweet a link to this. I'll go ahead and do that later today. But yeah, uh, he was on TV and he totally didn't talk about the podcast. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he said he didn't have the opportunity. Likely story. He was on a local Canadian news station, right? How how is how is there a local Canadian? I mean, news local station. To, well, you know what I mean. It's local to them, so it's not. Oh, local as opposed to national. Yeah. Well, it says it says CTV. I mean, it, it's got the. It, I mean, the the logo looks a lot like the CBC logo. Uh, but yeah, CTV is a national Canadian network. So okay. Could have yeah. been national. Our boy's famous. Yeah. We've rocketed him into fame, and now he's going to go off and do his own thing. In Canada, no less. <laughs> Next thing you know, he's going to be uh, he's going to be teaching astronomy. Yeah. <laughs> Big moves, huh? All right. We love you, Dennis. In other astronomical news, we also have a picture of a black hole, which is really neat. <laughs> or I guess I should yeah. say that we have a photo of the accretion disk, and then the, the right. hole is implied. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, I thought that was really cool. Did you see the Veritasium uh, video before the image was released? He might have done He's two, He's done right? two specifically about this image. Yeah, I think I clicked on the the second one, but I haven't. Cl- I didn't click on the first one. It's really worth watching. He did a, a really good explanation. Well, like he he guessed what it was going to look like and was very very close, and then he explained why it looks like this. And and then the second video he did was also really good because he included their their estimate photo of what um, SAG A star would look like. And they've imaged it. They just haven't done the processing, I believe. And so they released an image of what they believe that that their processed image of Sagai star will look like. Mm-hmm. And so he compared the two and showed the, the relative sizes and yeah, it was really cool. Yeah. So was it the first video where he talks about what the black hole would look like due to all that weird yeah. space time distortion? Yeah. It's really, uh-huh. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I did see that. I'd have to rewatch it because I know that there's some weird stuff going on there. Um, but it kind of, yeah. you know, twisted my mind along with space time. Yeah. Actually, that, that video, um, helped me understand black holes, like what they look like better than I've ever understood black holes because. I mean, I know that the light, you know, gets pulled around this, the black hole, but I didn't realize that, like, you basically got an infinite number of reflections around the edge getting smaller and smaller as they go away from the quote unquote visible edge of the, mm-hmm. of the event horizon. That's really cool. Crazy stuff, man. But yeah, so this is our first ever image of a black hole. I mean, that's just, that's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, very little of it had to do with space like space hardware <laughs> most of the telescopes are on the ground so yeah darn so no real good transition there but let's uh yeah let's <laughs> go ahead and move on to some space hardware and some space flight history so we got a couple of winners and i guess there's a little bit of a gradation here yeah just a little bit um there wouldn't have been a gradation except for the fact that you uh last week expounded on what the clue meant and you you pushed it wider so that people could guess a little more completely so our fullest credit goes to jason Friesen 
and and our two not partial credit just slightly less full credit winners they're still winners uh are uh, toby turkosi and karen thompson congratulations everybody this week in space flight history is the 15th and the 16th of april 1960 it was the launches of luna e2 number one and Luna E2 number two. So, oh boy, the numbers are going to get really confusing. Uh, the clue for this week was um, tighten your belt, and we'll we'll talk about that in a sec. Oh, okay. So the, these numbers are going to get really bad. I'm really sorry because I know I'm going to screw something up here, but I'm going to do my best. So Luna E3 number one and number two were very similar to the successful Luna 3 mission. So Luna 3 was also known as e2a number one this really sounds like somebody building multiple versions of the same spacecraft and kerbal space program trying to keep a reasonable version tracking naming system in place and totally failing and just winding up stacking (laughs) nomenclature on top of each other so e2a flew the luna 3 mission e3 would have been the Luna 4 and 5 missions, but they both failed. So both of the E3 vehicles were very similar to the E2A vehicle. They simply had better cameras. So just like the E2 vehicle, um, they didn't have any motors for doing trajectory corrections along the way. And also like E2, um, they were three axis stabilized. In fact, Luna 3, aka E2A number one was the first vehicle in space to have three axis stabilization. And the way that they did this is kind of cool. So they stabilized one axis pointing at the sun, um, which is fairly easy to do. It's the brightest thing in the sky. Um, and so once you have that one axis and they had a photo cell that they would rotate around that sun axis until the photo cell detected that it was pointing at the moon, which is, you know, the next brightest thing in the sky. And if you're pointing at the sun on one axis, you know you're not pointing at it at any other positions that, that the photocell would be pointing at. So they point the photocell towards the next brightest thing in the sky, and that's the moon, and they can start stepping photos. And as cool as that is, uh, Luna E3 number one and Luna E3 number two never got a chance to pull it off. So um, number one failed in the way that you suggested, which is tighten your belt so that you don't feel as hungry. And so what happened was um, both of these launched on a Luna 8K72 rocket with a Block E upper stage. And the Block E looks very similar. It's got two toroidal tanks with an engine in the middle, so it looks a lot like a Breeze upper stage. And the 8K72 is part of the R7 family, so if you think about the Vostok launch vehicle or the modern Soyuz, if it was a lot shorter, that's the shape that we're thinking about. Um, So an upper stage, a middle stage, and then four boosters strapped on the outside. So all those things went fine for E3 number one. They got mostly up into orbit. The block E upper stage starts firing and it stopped firing 300 feet per second short of its intended lunar transfer orbit, and that was uh, short enough that it actually didn't make it into low Earth orbit, it just crashed back into the atmosphere. So that's where the tighten your belt metaphor that you came up with 
uh, works in. Jason was the only person to guess that and the other one, so that's why he gets fullest credit. And so it was a mostly successful launch. They just didn't put enough fuel in it. There, it wasn't an engine failure. They just <laughs> didn't put enough fuel in the upper stage. That's yeah. That's a strange error to make of all the things that could go wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a dumb mistake. I mean, it's just you know the little things get you. So then E three number two. Uh, was set the next day. Unfortunately, its flight was even shorter. So they fire up all the engines. Uh, it starts lifting off the pad, but one of the strap-on boosters didn't make it up to full thrust. Uh, it only got up to 75% thrust, which was enough that it wasn't contributing enough to actually stay attached to the rocket. It ended up being, you know, relatively, uh, he- you know, it's like it was heavier, right? It's like yeah. it's pulled down to the earth harder than the other ones because it's not offsetting that with thrust. So anyway, it falls off of the rocket almost immediately. The rest of the rocket keeps flying up into the air, unfortunately with uh, very asymmetric thrust. It got about 200 meters up before it pitched over too far and started breaking up. So all of the boosters came off. It's a very Kerbal, I mean, if we're talking about Kerbal naming systems, uh, this failure is a very, very Kerbal thing. The strap-on boosters went flying off. Two of them uh, basically just fell straight to the ground, but one went rocketing, uh, <laughs> rocketing away. Uh, by itself through the air. It actually flew uh, straight at the assembly building. And uh, luckily it crashed before, yeah, (laughs) luckily it crashed before it made it there um, and it shattered all the windows in the assembly building. And so E3 number two was a drastically expensive failure. They uh, lost or, or they suffered huge amounts of damage due to this failure. So Chubby and Kieran both guessed number two, but only number two. So that's why they get their their winners. They're just not the fuller, the fullest credit that Jason is. But there you go. That's this week in spaceflight history. Cool. All right. With that, what is our clue for next week? All right. Next week in 1957, the clue is: I remember seeing rocket contrails above the mountains when I was a kid. If I had to wager a guess, I'd say this is a quote from somebody. But otherwise, I don't know. So in 1957. I remember seeing rocket contrails above the mountains when I was a kid. I don't know, but if uh, anyone out there thinks they know, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Barasheet crashes on the moon, or... Maybe we should say the bear sheet has a rud. Is that like a nicer way of saying it? I don't know, because like I, I think your your sentiment here is right. Like this was a very impressive feat. Just because they didn't get the very last bit of it done successfully doesn't mean that they didn't do something really cool. So I appreciate looking for alternate ways of talking about this. I think that rud is just a nice euphemism, but it still crashed. But I mean, it made it so far and. Yeah, I mean, this is very impressive, and I guess we won't, well, I don't know if we should spoil it, but this isn't the end of uh, this program, so. Oh, and I guess we should mention that RUD, R-U-D, stands for Rapid Unplanned Disassembly. I guess I just assumed that everyone knows that by now, but probably Well, not. remember, <laughs> this this goes out on the radio, so. Oh, true. <laughs> Somebody else had a really good description. This was more like a rapid, unscheduled vaporization, because it definitely, I mean, dissembled in the same way that the proto-molecule dissembles things. Um, but yeah, uh, Sam in the chat mentions litho-breaking. Isn't litho-earth, though? More rock, because like okay, lith means yeah. rock. But somebody called it, yeah, a breakup due to 
uh, high velocity, unexpected high velocity litho breaking or something. I don't know. So, something like that. That's pretty good. Um, so yeah, David, why did this rocket crash into the moon? What, what happened? I don't know if we really know at this point, but, uh, the first sign of trouble was, um, a failure in the IMU, the inertial measurement unit. Uh, so on planetary.org, there's a pretty decent summary of what happened in sequence. And, you know, the actual descent, it did appear to be going well at first. So this didn't happen until, I guess, what, the final minutes? Yeah. So at an altitude of 22 kilometers, uh, the lander had sent back an image, which um, I'm sure some people have seen. Uh, there's a little Israeli flag, and it says, small country, big dreams. Yeah, the only problem with that is that somebody figured out, uh, looked at the surface of the moon, and did some pattern matching and found where that actually is that image was taken on a previous orbit as far as i understand yeah well that was the conjecture but i think you're right that was brought up in a scott manley video i think and he said that's probably a previous pass but then there's another image that was taken uh let's see this might be the best image of the moon i've seen from orbit like probably like ever um it just has such good color and there's a little bit of lens flare so if you're into lens flare you can't go wrong here yeah and there's there's clearly some color aberration i think probably because well it, it might just be chromatic aberration from the lens but it, it really looks like somebody taking a photo of an lcd screen because the color distortions kind of change from one side of the image to the other. But it's still a gorgeous, gorgeous photo. It just looks cool. So, I mean, if that is some kind of an aberration, I'll take it because it just looks neat. And it seems like I've never seen the lunar surface with that much color. So, I mean, yeah, that might not be Oh, it's actual... yeah, it's definitely false color. I mean, that's clearly not the color of the moon. But They say that the moon is what the color of like black asphalt, but then you see pictures of the surface and it doesn't look like that. So I guess uh, it's always color corrected, but it's also kind of relative because if you're looking at something in the dark, it can appear to be brighter. And Sam in the chat points out that this photo probably isn't white balanced either. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you do white balancing. I mean, I don't know what uh, instruments they have there. Oh, it's it's just uh, something that you used to post-process the image. No, I'm saying that to do the white balance, wouldn't that have to be done? No, I guess it wouldn't have to be done on the spacecraft. Yeah, no, it would, wouldn't it? It depends on how well you understand your camera characteristics. Yeah. So yeah, it would be nice to be able to calibrate your camera against something that you know is white, but you can also characterize that from the ground. And I'll, honestly, the lunar surface is probably a pretty darn good thing to white balance against because it's so uniform. Well, they had that picture... I guess I have a different camera, but they have a picture of a flag. They should have just used the actual white color of the flag. <laughs> I don't know if you could do that. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was something that they could do and just didn't because they were they were releasing these photos. Yeah. But anyway, the first sign of trouble was at 1921 UTC. So I don't know what time it was where, you know, like everyone else was, but this is the official play-by-play -play according to UTC time. And at that point, there was an issue with the inertial measuring unit and that had reset. And apparently that had just shut off telemetry, which I don't know why that would happen as well. So I guess those two problems are certainly related, but why you would stop getting telemetry just because the IMU shut down, I'm not sure. But there's also speculation if that's related to another problem, which is that a few minutes later, the engine shut down. Whether or not these two are related, we don't know. But at the time, the telemetry indicator for the velocity was at 79.4 meters per second, and that's in a descending approach. So it was basically what, like falling, or, not, or I guess not falling, but do you think that that's like way too fast or way too slow? Because it seems pretty gentle. I, I don't know where that's coming from because... From my understanding, they were like hundreds of meters a second. Toward, yeah, towards the end. So this is probably, it probably just hadn't picked up speed. I mean, this was the first sign of Oh, trouble. that was probably at the beginning of yeah. the, 
of the engine shut down, then it picked up more speed. Yeah, okay, yeah, sure. So the engine shut off, came back online, and then they got new telemetry indicating the altitude was 149 meters, so they're just 149 meters above the surface, and that the vertical speed was 134 meters per second. So if you do the math there, you have about one second to you know observe what's happening, and that the horizontal speed was 947 meters per second. So that's clearly going sideways way too fast, um, and that, of course, they lost all telemetry at that point. They had about one second to kind of say, hey, what's going on here? And then it was gone because uh, it had hit the surface. What could have caused this? You say that maybe they know, but they haven't released that information yet. Yeah. I mean, my sense is that, you know, they were broadcasting this live. It seems like they're pretty open about, you know, about their failures. Um, so, so maybe, maybe there's a chance that they're, you know, just working up a press release before they or, you know, they, they want to look at the data that they have and make sure that they have the right answer before they um, talk more about it. At, that is as opposed to um, them knowing exactly what happened, just not talking about it. But I don't know. I mean, it's always hard to tell. Sam in the chat says that maybe it sounds like a general com- uh, general computer issue and that it probably does not help that they took more trips than they thought they would need through the Van Allen belts. Mm-hmm. You think maybe that could be it? I mean, yeah, I yep. I hadn't considered that. So I mean, it, it definitely is not something that you would like to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, is, is hang out in the Van Allen belt. So I think they hung out like two or three extra orbits, but they were, they were such high orbits that they, you know, really, you got some loiter time. So mm-hmm. this was such a great feat that they had pulled off that um, actually that whole Google Lunar X or just money from the X Prize Foundation, they are still going to get the $1 million. And this is going to be put towards the next Bearsheet lander, which will be Bearsheet 2.0. So I think that's awful nice of the X Prize Foundation to still give them the money. Well, what was the requirement? Not to nitpick here, but was it to simply land on the lunar surface? Because they did do that. Just well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. So uh, the Google Lunar X Prize was obviously to land on the moon and then translate a hundred meters or whatever. And then after nobody was going to make the deadline, after they'd extended it several times, they did this consolation prize where they're like, "Okay, Space IL is so close to doing it. We'll give you a million dollars if you can do it safely." And then they didn't do it safely, and they said, "Okay, go ahead and take the money anyway." And like it's always nice to get money yeah i mean nobody's gonna argue with getting a million dollars for your for your space program Mm -hmm. but the criticism that i've heard and i think this has a lot of merit is that this is the x prize foundation just trying to get their foot in the door and get a little bit of coverage you know when they kind of they're trying to spend less money but still get get people to pay attention to them which I, i think has some merit um, but, you know, ultimately it is supporting a space program and a, a private company at that. So it's kind of kind of hard to throw them too yeah. much flack. But, you know, I guess it is a bit of a win win for everyone, right? Because they get some publicity and Space IL gets the money. So, yeah, sure. Why not? One other cool thing is that maybe the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter might might be able to spot the crater formed by Bereshit. Yeah. So, uh-huh. <laughs> That'll be really cool. I guess it's a pretty well-defined crater because that's how things hit the moon because there's no atmosphere. So you do make a nice little crater. All the energy goes right into the surface. There's no atmosphere. There's like nothing else. So And so, some, like almost a kilometer per second of mm-hmm. you know momentum for however big this thing is. Like that's... Yeah, well, it was going yeah 947 meters per second. So yeah, that's that's almost a kilometer per second. 
the descent speed was 134 meters per second, which is still really fast. So do you think that this, like, would this look more like a, more of a streak and not Um, as much of a crater? Yeah, the weird thing about craters is that, like, if you look at the moon, most of the craters are very nearly circular. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, which seems weird given that you're going to get a very wide range of uh, impact angles. And it just comes down to the way that that splash happens in the regolith. So you have to be, it has to be a very, very glancing blow in order to create a streak instead of a crater. Um, So this thing was coming down at I mean, it, it was pretty tilted over. I think it was like 18 degrees or something, but I don't think that that's enough to make even, you know, very much of an elliptical crater. It's going to be pretty close to circular, but there will be uh, hopefully some nice splash, you know, some rays going mm-hmm. away from it um, that'll indicate, you know, the horizontal momentum. And then in the chat, uh, Sam has, has a great point that I didn't even think about is that the XPRIZE Foundation doesn't have the original XPRIZE money. So it's not like they had this money and now they're doling out just a little bit of it. The money was going to come from Google and Google had not handed that money over yet. They were going to give it directly to the winners of the contest. So, um, so this is Google or this is, uh, uh, the XPRIZE Foundation pulling the money out of their treasury to give to these people. And that, I think that's a really good point. Thank you, Sam. So I guess just to conclude, good luck to Space IL in the future and hopefully Bearsheet 2.0 will work out. Better news, happier news. Uh, we had a mm-hmm. Falcon Heavy launch, the second one, and that was a smashing success. Uh, bad choice of words, maybe I, sh- I shouldn't say smashing <laughs> success. That was a rocketing success, but uh, yeah, Ooh, no problems okay. there, no ruds there. They caught both of the fairings. Well, they didn't catch both of the fairings, but they fished them out of the drink. And that's one thing that was kind of interesting is that they didn't catch them, but they did get them back pretty quickly. And it seemed from some of the stuff that I've read that it almost looks like maybe they're, I mean, they're still going to try because they need to have, you know, some boats out there, but maybe it's just as good or nearly enough to just, you know, pick them up out of the ocean, refurbish them, and then fly them again. Because I don't know how many more years of this we'll have, but we are going to have the BFR, and that does not have a payload fairing that drops off. So this won't be an issue. And it seems that maybe SpaceX is doing what they often do, which is just to say, we won't bother fixing this problem because we have something better coming along. You know what I mean? Yeah. So maybe just fishing them out of the sea is the next best thing. (laughs) Is it three or six million dollars per fairing yeah it's something something huge let's move on to short and sweet we have four this week so two each all right first up darpa contest seeks to improve rapid launch capabilities darpa announced three qualifying competitors in their new launch challenge Virgin Orbit, Vector Space Systems, and an as-yet anonymous third company will receive short order launch directions in 2020, hopefully, getting payload specifications as little as a few days before the launch window. These qualifying teams received $400,000 to be getting on with and will receive $2 million prizes for the first launch and up to $10 million for successful subsequent launches. And number two, a successful test flight for Stratolaunch. Stratolaunch's rocket carrier Jet or Rock took to the skies for its first test flight on Saturday. The rocket carrier Jet is the largest aircraft in the world by wingspan at 238 feet or 73 
meters. It also set a record for total thrust on an aircraft. The jet hit a top speed of 189 miles per hour and a max altitude of 17,000 feet. It then returned to the Mojave Air and Space Port after several hours of flight. The giant plane is designed to carry payloads as large as the Pegasus XL rocket, which is their current choice for launch to orbit, but as of now, there are no launches scheduled on board the rocket carrier jet. Can't wait to see this thing with like an actual rocket. Like, it's huge. Yeah, it has a longer wingspan than the Saturn V is tall. I saw somebody tweeted that. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah. Thirdfully, Rocket Third Lab fully. unveils. <laughs> Third, Rocket Lab unveils Photon Small Sat Bus. Rocket Lab has built a small sat bus based on their kick stage. They want to be a turnkey solution for getting payloads into space. Instead of customers building payloads and then having to shop around for satellite buses to mount them on, Rocket Lab can now offer a simplified experience. And fourthly, Software simulation begins for SLS. The software in avionics that will fly on SLS from liftoff to MECO is being put through a series of flight simulations. Since the vehicle itself is still under development, emulation software was developed in parallel for testing before vehicle completion. The current version of this software is designated Release 14 and is undergoing formal run-for-record testing where it's subjected to various transients and scenarios involving equipment failures and wind field profiles. Moving on to upcoming launches, we have just one launch and a couple other things, uh, but the launch is an Antares 230. That's launching Cygnus uh, with the CRS NG11, and that is the Roger Chaffee. That's launching uh, from launch area zero at Wallops in Virginia, and that is at 2046 UTC, and that will be an instantaneous launch window. So yeah, this is the 12th flight of the Cygnus to station. So that'll be neat. So after the launch at 7 p.m. Eastern time, NASA TV will air coverage of the solar array deployment, which is very cool. Um, and then on the 19th, which is Friday, it will rendezvous with the space station. Um, NASA TV coverage will begin at 4 a.m. Eastern time. Capture is currently scheduled at 5.30 a.m. Eastern time. And then insulation uh, coverage will begin at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. And those are your upcoming space flight events. And with that, time to deorbit the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show too, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Thanks to Candyman56B from Canada for leaving us a lovely review. Or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So we will see you next time on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you.